what I intend to do is some broad parameters on how I look at uh, the pivot to Gulf and the morning. You know, if you look at the Middle East, historical relations, civilizational ties, ancient neighborhood, extended region, these are the common expressions you will find. But if you look at the substance, it is always weak. Our relations with the region has never been very strong in the political sense of the word. There were connections even during the British, because in the late 19th and early 20th century, uh, some of these Gulf countries were actually governed from Mumbai. Uh, till 1965, the Indian rupee was a legal currency in Kuwait. So we had a lot of historical connections. But two things happened. India did not capitalize on these connections simply because they were seen as a colonial legacy. See, we want to make a break from the past. So therefore, even all these links and associations were not cultivated for India's interests. The second thing was we had a baggage of anti-colonialism. So anti-colonialism, anti-imperialism, decolonization meant there is very little we could actually identify with the Gulf region. In 1955, we had a Bandung conference, which saw the beginning of Nehru-Nasser friendship, which meant Nehru's understanding of the region was dominated and influenced by Nasser's approach to our region. So that, that's a major drawback you'll find. And uh, that friendship continued till about June war, but then you have the regional climate also changed. So the Indian emphasis on secularism and everything <coughs> became little relevance in the Middle East, which has increasingly become conservative, beginning with the Rabat conference and consolidated in the oil crisis of 73. So when Saudi Arabia becomes the dominant player, India's secularism and all of them become redundant and irrelevant. And if you look at in that context, the only thing India could actually flag to promote his interest was a Palestinian cause. India could say, we never had relations with Israel, we are opposed to the state of Israel, and uh, India recognized the PLO, it recognized the Palestinian state, it established full diplomatic relations, and if you look at all these things, that was the only way India could actually promote its interest in the region. But if you talk in terms of anti-colonialism, all of them, there is very little common between India and the Persian Gulf. And therefore, you know, that includes even the Iranian monarch before 79. So therefore, there is very little exchanges between the two. But if you look at the post-Cold War, you recognize the US-dominated world. You recognize your ally Soviet Union not only was weakened, but actually disappeared. So you need to come to terms with a new world order dominated by the U.S. It is in that context you also recognize relations with Israel and everything from that. If you look at in this broad spectrum from Nehru to I would say till the 90s and even later on, what are the basic features of the relationship? They were largely transactional relationships. It is like, you know, you going and buying your provisions in 7-Eleven for the next 20 years. That doesn't mean anything. There is nothing beyond your going and buying. There is a different customer, but there is nothing personal about it. 
to your relationship transaction. And it also meant a very high degree of energy dependency. And uh, it was somewhere around two-thirds of our energy was coming from the region. Today is slightly less than 60%, partly because of diversification, partly because even US is a supplier today. That's why the number has come down. But if you look at a number of countries like Iraq, Kuwait, or even Yemen before the civil war, more than 90% of India's imports from these countries were energy related. So therefore, if you take the energy, there is nothing much to talk about in Twitter. And to a very large extent, you know, um, the investment from this region is also very marginal. And Indian leaders always talk about, you know, we need a huge infrastructure investment and the sovereign wealth from the Gulf is a major one. But if you look at in actual numbers, more investment came from a smaller country like Bahrain than the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Yeah. I think that's the ground reality, even today. And if this is not enough, Islam has become a liability. I have no idea why. Because if you look at it, Islam came to India in the 7th century, but it's an Indian in every sense of the word. It's not a foreign religion. It was a foreign 14 centuries ago. But the moment it comes, Islam is Indian. But somehow, Islam is seen as a liability in the relationship. Somehow, you know, we never capitalize on the uniqueness we have got. And you know, that is the drawback which you have seen. And these were compounded by the absence of political relationship between India and uh, the region. I'll give you just one example. In 1982, Mrs. Gandhi went to Saudi Arabia. And uh, if you look at the joint communique at the end of the statement, she invited the uh, invitation to visit India to King Khalid, Crown Prince Fahad, and the second deputy prime minister, Prince Abdullah. But only Prince Abdullah could come to India 23 years later. Because Khalid passed away, Fahad also passed away, and only King Abdullah came after 23 years. And for a very long time, India's largest trading partner was UAE. Now it's overtaken by China, last few years. And the Prime Minister's visit to UAE was 1981. After that, for the next 34 years, no Indian Prime Minister ever went to UAE. And if you look at the Indian distance, it is easy to go from Trivandrum to Abu Dhabi than Delhi to Trivandrum. So that is, the travel within India is longer than the travel to the country which is your largest trading partner. That the political uh, indifference and neglect is unbelievable. And this is uh, more interesting during the UPA government, 2004-2014. It had five foreign ministers. Only two of them were what you could call political heavyweights, Pranam Mukherjee and Salman Khurshid. But because they are political heavyweights, they were always tied down in the domestic coalition politics. They were firefighting in India rather than visiting outside. And therefore, during this period, the Middle East was given to a junior minister from Kerala, Yahamad. He was not a congressman, he is from the Indian Union Muslim League. So therefore, his constituency was limited. He was only interested in Kerala immigrants in the Gulf. 
And because he was junior, he could never meet any senior officials. This was the situation for nearly 10 years. And therefore, when you talk about Modi, you can ask a question, why not India's Gulf, not why Modi's Gulf policy? You know, in India, foreign policy is always the domain of the Prime Minister. While the foreign minister is there, but is always the prime minister who leads the foreign policy. And but in that context, two people are most visible. One was Nehru, and now after Nehru, the only other person who can think of is Modi. But before we go, I need to make a very small clarification. You know, we are all uh, very liberal within the house. We are conservative outside the house. I can accept whatever my son or a daughter does. The same thing done by somebody else. No, no, this is unacceptable. So we always have this two different yardsticks. What is acceptable to within the family and what is, which is not the case externally. Put it very simply, you are liberal at home, conservative outside or antithesis. Mood is exactly the opposite. Within India, he is still a hardliner Hindutva politician. He still caters to the right-wing Hindu elements. When they go out of line, he doesn't immediately react. He constantly tweets. So when it comes to right-wing violence, he takes his own time, settle down, then only issues a state. Which is normally seen as a, some sort of an amber light to do whatever you want to do. Not a green light, not a red light, in between. Okay, it's acceptable time. So it has given a lot of right-wing elements to say things against the minorities, against all of the groups. And if this is not enough, until 2017 when Shinto Abe forced him to do it, he never went to a mosque. He never wore a skull cap. He never even attended the iftar party hosted by the president. That was Modi's for him. And if you look at in uh, two years ago, there was an election in Uttar Pradesh, the largest state in India. Out of the 403 seats, not a single Muslim was fielded by the BJP. In Rajasthan, only one out of 199 was fielded by BJP. So therefore, if you look at the Muslims and BJP, it's almost two different things. You know, they are not in the same page. Even though India has a very substantial Muslim population. So you pretend that, you know, they don't exist. This is what Modi for you. But the moment he crosses the immigration counter in the Delhi airport, he's a different person. He's a secular, inclusive, accommodative, respectful. Something you can never imagine him doing it on this side of the immigration counter. And therefore, the first place he visits in Abu Dhabi is a grand mosque. And that's the picture you have put up. Today's talk is, you know, Modi standing in front of a mosque. If it's in India, it would be different, but it's, not, it's, it's in Abu Dhabi. That's a message he's communicating. So the moment I'm out of the country, I'm an Indian statesman. This is a duality. This is something similar to the, what you would normally say about the Chinese. The political rigidity and an economic flexibility. How long you can do? The Chinese have done about 40 plus years. So how long Modi can do? We need to figure it out. And the second thing is, he comes from a state. He, he doesn't come, uh, he never had a position in Delhi. The first position he, he, he took in Delhi was a prime minister. He never even served in Delhi, even in the party hierarchy or anything. And therefore people thought, you know, foreign policy will not be his USP. That's exactly the opposite. 
He is the most widely traveled leader you could ever imagine. From uh, 2014 till March, this uh, early this month, he has undertaken 41 foreign trips. In most of the cases, it's two, three countries together across the globe. He went almost all the continents. He has visited 59 countries. Most of the countries, an Indian Prime Minister was there for the first time since 1947. And in the Middle East, he was in Turkey for the G20 meeting. He was in Israel. And in the Persian Gulf, he has visited all the important countries of the region. Beginning with UAE in 2015, then he went to Saudi Arabia, Iran and Qatar in 2016. 2017, there was no visit except to Israel. In 2018, he went to Jordan, Palestine, Omar and UAE. I think this is what it is. In addition to that, he had the Saudi, sorry, Emirati Crown Prince as a chief guest at the Republic Day in 2017. Now you're asking, does India look to the West? Basically mean Persian Gulf. Is it acting West or is it turning West? We'll come to that point a little later, but these are the questions you need to ask. Then you ask the question, what is new about Modi from the previous leaders? The political engagement is highly visible, which was never the case since 47, even under Nehru. Nehru had an exposure, but only to Nasser. Between uh, 1954 to 1959, Nehru and Nasser met 17 times, which was unimaginable in those times, travel and everything. But Nehru never went beyond. His world was revolving around Nehru, around Nasser. This is not the case in Modi. Since 2014, Indian leaders have visited every country in the wider Middle East. Every country, whether the president, vice president, prime minister or foreign minister were there, every country except Libya. Because Libya, we shut down our embassies and therefore it's logical. In the war-torn countries like Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, junior minister were. The same applies to Iraq when another junior minister went for the evacuation. And if this is not enough, he has hosted leaders of Qatar, Jordan, Israel, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, Iran. So he has hosted a whole range of leaders since 2014. Previously, Indian leaders used to attend international multinational forums. Non-alignment was major one. Modi has been attending so many multilateral forums. The only exception was he never attended a single NAB meeting. That's one message. He never attends any of the meeting. Okay. What does he do in G20 meeting? In G20 meeting, he is using the opportunity to cultivate the Saudi leadership. So he has met the G Saudi leadership in Brisbane, in Turkey, in China. And again in Buenos Aires last year. The only time he never met was in Frankfurt when Saudi Arabia sent a junior official. So that's why there was no meeting. Otherwise, he was cultivating uh, first as a crown prince Salma, then King Salma, now for the last two occasions, MBS. So in spite of the Khashoggi affair, he was very happy to be meeting uh, MBS in Buenos Aires. Similarly, he has been meeting this Emirati crown prince four times. 
twice in his country and twice in Emirates. I think this is what the interesting thing was. <coughs> in addition to that, other ministers are also going to the region. The Home Minister was in Israel, Bahrain and Oman. Defence Minister was there in Bahrain and Oman. And the Transportation Minister was there in Iran for the Chawahapo. So therefore you have high level of political exchanges which was not there before. Okay, what are the focus areas? The main focus is the energy security. That is still the dominant feature. But India is slightly moving out of the simply barter trade, buying and selling. What we are trying to do is investment from the region. And we are planning a refinery with external collaboration. And we are also talking about Saudi Arabia and Emirates participating in India's strategic oil reserves. I think this is the area we are moving. It's not simply procuring oil for your requirements. You are actually going forward. Then there is a wider importance of the security cooperation. If you look at the official statements, there is a greater emphasis on security than any time in the past. What are the areas? If you look at it, until Moody comes into picture, when you talk about a security cooperation, you only talk about Israel, you only talk about counter-terrorism. But if you look at now, you're talking about a security cooperation with Saudi Arabia, even Bahrain, Jordan, UAE, and Iran. And I think that's the kind of things which is happening. What are the areas they're talking about? They're talking about intelligence sharing, fighting extremism, fighting radicalism, fighting ISIS, drug trafficking, organized crime, maritime security, cooperation during natural disaster, joint military training and exercise, sea lanes of communication, cyber security, money laundering, terror finance, and regular consultation by the NSG. In other words, the whole gambit of areas being identified in terms of cooperation between the two sides. And in addition to that, you have what I would call very quiet deportation. In the last few years, about a dozen Indians wanted by criminal, by the investigation agencies, were quietly deported from Saudi Arabia and Emirates. They were actually not deported. What actually happens is, the guy is put on the plane. India is told, okay, this plane, seat 9B, pick him up. So they picked him up and done it. More or less exactly, it's not like, you know, what India is going through the exhibition with in, in Britain is long drawn process in the courts. They simply put them in a plane and send them back to India. And some of them have Pakistani connections. And in spite of that, Saudis and others were able to do that. The other thing would be there is a redefinition of strategic. Previously, when you talk about strategic, only talk about military, security, and hardware. Now, what you're seeing is you are seeing a greater economic cooperation in the security sense of the world. I think that is where the discourse is changing. Even with Israel, when you talk about security, you are talking about food security, water security, not the military hardcore security. That's the uh, other thing. The penultimate would be <coughs> Modi government always focuses on the diaspora. Wherever he goes, you know, from Madison Square Garden, he was always enjoying talking to people wherever he goes. That's the permanent fixture in wherever he goes. It's like, you know, Whichever city I go, the first place I visit is a zoo. So similarly, Modi has the first thing is I need to have a Madison Square Garden wherever I go. So therefore, he has that uh, habit. But he has done it even in Saudi Arabia. He couldn't do it in a public audience. So what he did was 
he went to an, uh, a, a training TCS uh, IT training company for women entrepreneurs in Saudi Arabia. He went and met them. So the, he always deals with that kind of diaspora uh, thing. The last point is, you know, Iraq has returned to the energy market, which was not there before, and therefore you will find um, it is becoming a major supplier to India once again. Historically, Iraq was a friend of Iran, India because of the uh, because of the uh, secular Arab nationalism, and therefore, for the last sanctions and everything, civil war now, Iraq is back in business, so it's becoming a major trading partner with that. What are the specific gains? If you look at a tangible one, what are the ones? We need to accept that the results are not commensurate to the potentials. Definitely not commensurate to the promises. <clears throat> it is not commensurate to the expectations. That we need to accept it. I know um, if you look at the India, India is in a way antithesis of Singapore. And the things work in, in Singapore, but in India, if it works, you should thank your stars. I think that's exactly so. We need to accept that basic uh, fault line. In 2015, the Emirates have promised an investment up to $75 billion. This February, when MBS came to India, he promised investment up to $100 billion. And uh, India got the waiver for the Chabaha port without a time limit. And India also got the official U.S. sanction to procure up to 300,000 barrels a day from Iran. And uh, we got a 1 billion waiver from Qatar because we refused, we could not procure the gas because oil prices was going. We had to pay a compensation and the Qataris simply wrote off a billion dollars. And uh, India is planning a petrochemical plant on the western coast at about 44 billion dollars. Emirates and Saudi Arabia are going to be joint partners. If it works out, Saudi Arabia is going to supply about 2 million barrels a day, which is almost a third of what India requires at this point of time. And the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company has agreed India could get up to 10% share in the company. Negotiations are there with Aramco for a possible Indian purchase of its share. And uh, there is a small growth in the investment, which is not very much. The most interesting and visible thing was, you know, uh, I travel to Israel almost a daily basis, uh, on a yearly basis. From 1988, initially I went via Rome, then via Cairo, then uh, Istanbul, then Amman, because all the lines were available and they were uh, cancelled then Moscow for the last four years because Amman route is cancelled and now I can just fly directly to South Israel flying over Saudi Arabia. India as of now for the last one year India is the only country whose national carrier can fly over Saudi airspace to reach Israel. If you know that in the 1950s there is something called BOAC British Overseas Airline Corporation before the British Airways and there was a direct flight from Delhi to India, Delhi, stopover in Tel Aviv and Delhi. So previously there were flights stopping over in Israel to reach the destination east. But after the early 60s when the Arab boycott was introduced, 
the Arab countries simply cancelled or denied the airspace to any flights leaving or reaching Tel Aviv, Israeli cities. And Saudi Arabia simply granted the permission to Air India. Israelis are not very happy with it. They are thinking we should also have a same flight because there is a time difference. I can reach Israel in about six hours. But otherwise, if you are going from Delhi, you have to almost come down, go to Red Sea and then reach there. It will take about 11 hours. It's about four to five hours difference you can take. So therefore, it's cost. So Israelis are not very happy with it. But today, we are the only airliner anywhere in the world who can use an Arab airspace to reach an Israeli destination. I think that's not a small thing. And during the Yemen evacuation, Salman gave a small time. Okay, I can't stop the bombing, but I can give you a wave hours, interval about 9 to 11 o'clock in the morning, you carry over your evacuation. So in other words, Indian evacuation from Yemen of its citizens was possible because of cooperation with Saudi Arabia. Otherwise, it was not possible. And Saudi Arabia also said, should there be a problem for India to import oil from Iran because of American sanctions, we can step in. We will compensate anything. And if you look at it, in India is also balancing very delicately. Israel and Palestine, Qatar and Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia and Iran. We are managing reasonably good relations, all of them, without the tension at the bilateral level ever coming and affecting us. And this month, our foreign minister was invited as a guest to OAC foreign minister's meeting. If you remember, it began in 1969. We almost gate crashed into the Rabat conference only to be thrown out because Pakistan insisted that India should not be invited. On the same pretext, Pakistani foreign minister boycotted the OAC meeting this time. But the day after, they issued a statement about Kashmir. So if you look at it, India's participation will not automatically remove the discussions on Kashmir. Discussions on Kashmir will take place in OAC, but eventually you recognize who is more important. India as a friend or India as a, someone who wants to needle, I think that's a chance these countries are going to buy. What are the challenges so far? Walking the talk is an extremely difficult talk in India. I don't know if you're familiar with the word Hindi. Hindi word for yesterday is Kal. Hindi word for tomorrow is Kal. So when I say Kal without completing a sentence, there is no way you can say I'm talking about yesterday or tomorrow. That's our sense of time. So therefore, walking the talk is extremely, extremely difficult. We promise the moon and deliver the mouse. The real one, not the computer one. So that's the kind of thing. We also face a lot of challenges. You know, for instance, China building the one bird, one road, and which is a major challenge for India. In the sense, you know, that there is a more attraction for Chinese uh, diplomacy than for India. That we need to accept it. And Russia is also trying to enter in the Persian Gulf. From not, they were not satisfied only with Syria, they are also trying to move. And the other thing is, you know, the decline of the US in the region is very visible. I'm not suggesting that end of American influence. But if you look at it, the American ability to influence the events in the region is decreasing by the year. Today, no country or a group of countries are in a position to replace the United States. But the declining influence is very much there. So therefore, if India wants to play a role, you not only have to compete with Russia and China, but also look at the weakness. You cannot piggyback on the United States. So that's the major thing. 
In the last few years, trade is also falling because our high point in 2011 was $795 billion overall foreign trade. And it is dropping ever since. Only this year there is going to be a turnaround because I just got the figures at least uh, until January this year, our overall foreign trade was about uh, 703 billion. So probably I would say that we can get back to 2011 figures after six years of downward trend. The fourth factor I would say that is an institutional inertia. In India, nothing works on time. Abu Dhabi promised 75 billion. Till now, only 1 billion has come. It's more or less Saudi Arabia, the Emirates are saying, I have a money, where do I invest? Money in the suitcase, tell me where do I do? So we don't have any project, the size and scale, which is necessary to be a major player. So though institutionally, we are not in a thing. Right now we are in the election campaign. So nothing will happen, say I would say till about June, until after the government is formed. So therefore, you're going to write off the next few months on the basis of this. The other point is sectarianism. Sectarianism for India is not a foreign policy issue. It's a domestic issue. Some estimates put it third, but some estimates put it as a second. We are the second largest Shia population after, Pakistan, after Iran. Somebody said Pakistan has more, but basically we have a sizable Shia, po <coughs> Shia population in the world. In the next 20 years, India will have the largest Muslim population in the world larger than Indonesia and we have the largest population of all the sects which branched out of Islam Ahmadiyas, Ismailis, Baha'is, we name them all of them, we are the largest concentration and therefore a sectarian violence in, in, in sectarian tension in the Middle East is a domestic problem in India don't take it as an offense if I don't handle the sectarianism carefully We'll have a Karachi in India, which I don't want. I think that's the kind of delicacy we need to handle it. The return of the sanctions is another major drawback. So it, it, Iran is a complicated player, but the American sanctions actually makes Indian choices extremely limited. So you need to navigate your steps rather carefully. The Arab-Israeli conflict is now dormant, but we don't know how long it will be in that status. Suddenly it may flare up any day and then you have a different dynamic. So that regional tension is going to be the major uh, drawback. And we also have the Arab-Persian tensions. One should not underestimate that. While everybody wants to dominate, if you look at today's context, Iran is the only country which has an influence well beyond its territorial boundaries. It's a only hegemonic power in the entire Middle East. It has an influence, influence even presence, in Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Palestine, Bahrain, Eastern Province of Saudi Arabia, and Yemen. It has an influence, presence, or actually involvement in all these tension areas. See, if you look at it, that's the only country which has a much wider reach than any country in the world. The Arab Spring is not very going. Uh, very well, it is it is created more tensions than anyway, but which is a major issue. But one of the interesting things about uh, Modi is that uh, Pakistan has a less role to play in India's Middle East policy. It began somewhere around 2000 when Indian leaders 
deliberately dealing Pakistan while dealing with the Gulf. It's more or less sounds logical. If you want to be an Asian power, you can't be constantly competing with Pakistan. So therefore, you have to decide whether I am an Asian power or a South Asian power. I think that is a context in which India carefully dealing with Pakistan, which also made life easier for the Arab countries. You only talk about bilateral issues, issues that benefit you, rather than simply talking about Pakistan. Then, then there is no end to that. If India thinks that no Arab countries are going to give up Pakistan just because of India, it's not going to happen. So why complicate your relationship? So I think that was a careful strategy in 2000, which was continuing till now. And that is why if you look at even the Pulwama incident, the terror attack, Saudi Indian Crown Prince came to India without much of a difficulty. And therefore, if you look at it, that is so you need a mature way of handling the relationship. And I think India has done that reasonably well. And the same thing uh, with other countries. Now, is it a look west policy? Is India looking to the west? In the sense, the Persian Gulf. I'll take you back to the 90s. And that is where India's look east policy began. And I still recollect reading in the newspapers. In 1994, Singapore president was invited as the chief guest of the Republic Day celebrations. A number of professors and elite in Delhi were furious. Why do we give a status to a tiny little country called Singapore? That honor should have gone to Malaysia. And they actually wrote, but I still don't remember the paper, but I remember it's a pink color paper, which means it's an economic times or Financial Express. And they wrote a letter to it. And they didn't understand the logic of the government of India. But if you look at it, if India has a greater relationship with ASEAN today, that is thanks to Singapore. Singapore was able to play a brilliant role for India's integration into ASEAN. Without Singapore, India would not be where it is today with regard to ASEAN, including the East Asian Summit. All of them. It's entirely because of Singapore. So my understanding is, if we play our cards well, Emirates can play the role. Because Emirates is a small country, it has enormous resources, but it doesn't have illusions of being a greater regional power. And therefore, if India plays its cards well, Emirates could be your strategic ally like Singapore was to India from the 1990s. I think that is how I look at it. A final word, the title, Pivot to a Gulf. I don't know about how far uh, Modi uh, is going to carry, but India's future in the international politics will be determined by Gulf. And last year, we have, we have overtaken France as the sixth largest economy. And with the Brexit, probably India will overtake Britain much quickly in the next few months. Which means only Germany, Japan, China, and the United States before us. And if India wants to progress politically, it likes to progress economically. Whether Modi's re-election or anything will be determined by economy. The progress, the inclusiveness he talks about, the progress, economic welfare is going to determine. So I would say that uh, Saudi Arabia and Emirates will be pivot to India's Gulf policy. And the Gulf will be pivot to 
India's great power aspirations.